I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As a nonprofit organization, it's donations from listeners that enable us to educate and empower people to become climate advocates. So whether you're a longtime listener or you just discovered us and you like what you hear, consider a donation that aligns with that value. Donating is easy. Just head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. If you're not ready to take the step to becoming a donor but want to help us out, tell your friends, your grandma, your coworker about us and rate us on your streaming platform. Great point, Flora. The the reviews, ratings, and definitely the recommendations to friends add up in, in the form of new listeners. So thanks for your help there. So as this year's wildfire season draws to a close in at least Western North America, many of us are finally breathing a sigh of relief as well as cleaner air. And that's good news. And it's also an important opportunity to refocus our attention on the greater challenge, addressing the increasing risk of wildfire driven by a warming climate and years of fire suppression. And as Canada's record wildfire season shows, the risk is spreading to forests that don't typically burn. So in today's episode, we dive into the world of wildfire, its natural role, its relationship to climate change, and most importantly, what we can do to help our forests become more resilient as temperatures rise. But before we introduce today's guest, let's talk about uh, this week's reason for hope. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, So as many of us know, the uh, COP28 conference or uh, Conference of the Parties, which is basically the UN's um, climate conference, is coming up shortly in Dubai. And the EU has agreed on a position prior to this conference, and that will be uh, that they will phase out unabated fossil fuel um, consumption. And I, I guess it's important to keep in mind that you know this word unabated, which is not clearly defined by them in this context, uh, is a little bit of a hurdle, but at least this is a move in the right direction towards at least phasing out fossil fuels. So hopefully this is one of those things that again, we see a trickle down and other nations start moving in the in the same direction. But you know, as you and I spoke earlier about Jason, I think the important thing at these conferences is some of these deals on the sideline where more developed nations help developing nations um, mitigate their fossil fuel use, even if there's no overwhelming agreement at these conferences, which of course we've not seen at the par- in the past. But anyway, basically a positive move. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's, it's incremental and it feels crazy that that language hasn't already been adopted. But when you remember there's 200 nations that are involved in this, it's easy to see how you get stuck, right, with these oil producers like Saudi Arabia dragging their feet. Um, you know, I mean, one other potential benefit coming up with this conference is that the Pope is rumored to be going to attend. I heard like Whoa. a 90% chance. And he's coming to help turn the screws on on the politicians that, you know, haven't yet had the spine to, to do the right thing. So good on the Pope. And with that, yeah, let's let's get down to it. Let's introduce today's guest. Uh, today we have Matthew Hurtow joining us, who is a professor of quantitative ecology at the University of New Mexico. He has a BS in forestry from Northern Arizona University and a PhD in ecology from the University of California, Davis. 
His research focus is on climate change mitigation and adaptation in forest systems. So in other words, he is the perfect guest to help us explore today's topic. Yeah, really excited to have him on. Matt, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thanks, Jason. So start you off with the question we do all our guests. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Yeah, so really for me, from a, a forest ecologist perspective, it gets down to the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of the legislation that was passed a couple of years ago that really boosted uh, funding for managing fire uh, and restoring fire on federal lands in the country. And so that piece of legislation, I, I think the total was somewhere around five and a half billion dollars for forest restoration work. And, you know, that's a, a nice down payment on kind of the, the backlog of work that needs to happen on restoring ecologically appropriate fire to our, our Western forests to help make them more resilient to changing climatic conditions. And, you know, I know sometimes the dollars can all feel big, but what kind of a, an annual budget would be, I mean, I'm guessing there's sort of what we need to spend to kind of catch up from being behind. And then there's like, what do you need to spend on an ongoing basis to make sure we're in a good spot? Do you have a sense of those dollar figures? You know, that's a really good and interesting question that I don't know there's a great answer for. Um, so one of the interesting things about fire uh, in these ecosystems is that once you do get quote unquote caught up, you know, you're, you're trying to position the system to be able to receive fire in a way that's ecologically beneficial and also minimizes the hazard to society. And, you know, if you get, you know, quote unquote, caught up, like you've done that work across the landscape, then when ignitions happen, you can manage them to burn in an ecologically appropriate manner. And so it's basically this, you know, this, this feedback process where, you know, as more area gets treated with, with the right types of fire, we will end up spending less on suppression. But in the meantime, to, to give some perspective on that five and a half billion dollar number, so I live just south of the Santa Fe National Forest. Um, and if you take all of the kind of dry, frequent fire forest types on the Santa Fe, all that land area, and just, you know, back of the envelope calculation said every one of those acres needs to be treated, which is not true. But, you know, let's just for argument's sake, say they do, sure. that would require $1.2 billion. So needless to say, $5.5 billion is a decent start, but it's just that a start. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Well, let's get back to like, I guess, big picture, starting kind of with the question um, that I think a lot of folks have, how are wildfires, you know, both kind of contributing and being impacted by, by climate change? I'm going to start with uh, being impacted by part of the question first. And, and so, you know, basically as the atmosphere heats up, it's able to hold more moisture. And um, so that's this condition we call uh, atmospheric water demand or vapor pressure deficit. So it's how dry that atmosphere is and basically how much moisture it sucks out of the ecosystem. And so I like to think of the atmosphere as kind of a giant sponge um, that's constantly pulling moisture from the atmosphere or from the ecosystem, unless it's raining, you know? And so basically as the atmosphere pulls moisture from the ecosystem, it makes it a lot more flammable. And so, 
you know, when some colleagues of mine did an analysis that showed across the Western U.S. since the mid 1980s, roughly half of the area burned. The cause was climate change, right? Was this dryness of fuel conditions because the atmosphere is drier. And then we published a paper last year led by Carolyn Wong about forest fire area burned. And it showed that, you know, there's an exponential relationship with uh, vapor pressure deficit. So as the, the drier the atmosphere becomes, the more area we expect to burn in a very, you know, dramatic fashion in, in terms of forest fire area. And so that's kind of the, the climate change effects on flammability aspect. Sure. You know. And then in terms of wildfires contributing to climate change, my colleague, Christine Widmeyer and I did an analysis maybe, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago now, looking at wildfire emissions versus uh, prescribed fire emissions and, and the like. And, you know, at the end of the day, they can be substantial from, from Western North America or, or North America in general, um, but they're really a small, very small fraction of our fossil fuel emissions. Right. So they're they're kind of for North America they're kind of irrelevant. I mean they matter to some degree, but not not as much as as reducing fossil carbon emissions. Now you know if we expand our look to to the globally, um, you know there are fires burning in Indonesia right now. Every time we have an El Nino, Indonesia burns, and a lot of that carbon or a lot of those emissions are from peat. Uh, which is, you know, long sequestered carbon in the soil. So it's that organic soil. It dries out, it becomes flammable. And, you know, we're seeing just massive amounts of emissions from, from these peat fires. And, you know, that can have a significant effect on climate. Uh, so can high latitudes where, you know, if you're up in the kind of boreal system where there's very organic soils as well, you know, high latitude in Canada this year, some of those fires are burning in places where they're burning into that organic soil and that's releasing long stored carbon to the atmosphere. And so, of course, those are going to contribute to warming quite a bit. So it sounds like it depends on the forest type and, and the amount of you know carbon you have stored in the soil and et cetera. Yes. When it comes to fires and, and firefighting, do you have a sense of kind of how much of the effort is focused on, you know, kind of protecting structures versus sort of putting out the fire itself? Yeah. So that's a, an interesting question from the perspective of how we allocate wildland fire resources uh, as a whole and then on the really big fires, right? And so, you know, I think one of the things that I think most people don't quite comprehend is that we are incredibly successful at putting out fires in the United States. So, about 98% of fires that occur are caught and contained in what's called initial attack. So they start burning and a fire crew gets on it and they, you know, they scrape away fuels around it um, within that first burn period. And, and, you know, it's basically held at one to 10 acres, something like that. Right. So really, really small, that's 98%. So it's really, um, it's really the other 2% of cases where, you know, weather conditions are extreme, it supports rapid fire growth, and that fire escapes initial attack that are really problematic for us from a societal standpoint. And so when that happens, there's really no putting out the fire. Basically, all the firefighters can do is, is try and herd it in a direction where it's going to do the least amount of damage. And so we spend huge amounts of resources doing that. 
a lot of those resources are put into protecting structures and what firefighters refer to as values at risk. So that might be like power infrastructure. It might be any number of things that we as society uh, deem important. But I, you know, I, I think that one of the things we really need to be talking about are those other 98% of ignitions. And so many of those are occurring when weather conditions are mild, which is why we're able to, to, to catch them on initial attack. And we don't necessarily need to go right to fire suppression in those cases. And so the Wildland Fire Commission uh, just released its report last week, um, and they make, make it clear that we really need to change um, our relationship with, with fire suppression. And to do that, we need to increase our wildland fire workforce so that we're better able to manage those ignitions to meet our objectives. So, uh, you know, when we have uh, an ignition occur under relatively benign weather conditions and in a place where it's not threatening people's homes, you know, if we have the human capital to manage that, we can let that fire burn in a controlled sort of way to help reduce fuels and, and reduce the chance of uh, future extreme fires impacting our communities. So it sounds like protecting, you know, the, the structures and other, you know, assets is is a big part of it. I guess you're leading into sort of the core question, I think, at least that I have, which is how do we balance all this, right? Like what's the approach that we need to be implementing to minimize that wildfire risk and risk of these sort of mega fires with like improving kind of forest resilience, you know, et cetera? Yeah. You know, that's the that's the kind of big question. So I think it really depends on forest type. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generally divide our forests in the West into two kind of categories. And one would be the drier forest types that, you know, these historically, they burned very frequently. So every several years to several decades, you would have fire and it's mostly on the forest floor. And then, you know, I'm, I'll contrast that with what we call climate limited systems, which are systems that most years are not available to burn because they're either too wet or too cold. And then it's only when we have a, you know, a drought or some extreme weather event that they become available to burn. Um, so in those really dry forest types, um, which honestly, outside of the Pacific Northwest, you know, California in the Rockies, that's where a lot of the kind of development in the wildland urban interface has occurred uh, is in these drier types. And so in a lot of these, you know, there's an annual fire season. There's a period every year where that vegetation can burn and they're what we call fuel limited systems. So it's only what prevents fire from occurring is when there's not enough fuel to support it. And so these are the types that we've most negatively impacted through fire suppression by keeping fire out of the system. They've gotten all the Tree density has increased a lot, and uh, the dead fuels have built up on the forest floor. And by altering the forest structure and the fuels, we have increased the chance that fire moves from the forest surface into the canopy. And so, in these sorts of systems, um, you know, we've got lots of—I mean, many decades of research that points to the fact that the best thing we can do is reintroduce uh, ecologically appropriate fire. And so, you know, that can be done by just bringing fire back in with prescribed burning or managing an ignition uh, when weather conditions are benign. Or it can be the other end of the spectrum is maybe we need to, we're closer to communities or it's a risky terrain for fire, uh, fire crews. And so there need to be some mechanical thinning first. So go and cut some of the trees down 
to create conditions that are safe to operate and then put fire back into the system. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the drier type. So in those, it's really getting fire back in there in a, in a way that is thoughtful so that it, you know, it has a chance to reduce those fuels and then hopefully avoid the, the really ugly fires where you're burning and you're taking down all these trees as opposed to just getting rid of stuff on the forest floor. Absolutely. And then what about for these other systems you talked about, which I know we have a fair amount of those in the Northwest here where it stays a little wetter certain parts of the year? Yeah. So in those kind of climate limited systems, you know, so most years they're not able to burn. The challenge, of course, with climate change is that, you know, increasing variability from year to year, the projections all suggest that the burn window is going to change. They're going to become more flammable over time because of snow drought and higher temperatures and stuff like that. And so in these systems, you know, we've, there's been a fair amount of research by um, a bunch of different folks up in the Northwest looking at um, these systems in the mountains and, and functionally what we've done from, you know, some fire exclusion, but, but also a lot of our, our past uh, forest management practices is we've homogenized the forest. Um, So we've got a lot of forest that is very similar in age. It's also a lot more connected now, right? And so those two things like homogeneity, like making things very similar across the landscape is a recipe for larger fires. And so what this work that's been done in Oregon and Washington shows is that, you know, around the turn of the 20th century, I mean, we had forests in the mountains, but we also had a lot more meadows and we had shrublands and stuff like that. And so the forest wasn't continuous. And that basically acted as, um, you know, a control on how big a wildfire could actually get. You know, that, that variability also in terms of the kind of the age structure of the forest and then variability in vegetation types across space is also really good for a whole bunch of other ecosystem functions um, and so the work that I've read from that area and the talks that I've seen from other researchers suggests that, you know, one of the things we need to do is reintroduce that heterogeneity into these systems. So a lot more variability across space. So more different types of species, different ages. So we don't have just sort of the classic where you look out and it's just this large blanket all, you know, in our case, it seems like Douglas fir trees and, and nothing yeah. else. And then it sounds like having, you know, more open spaces as well. Um, yep. in, in addition to those those forest pockets, I'm just curious, are there certain you know species of trees that are that are better equipped to deal with fire? And you're talking about the importance of diversity. Like, how do we kind of think about you know I don't know if rehabilitation is the right word, but getting these ecosystems back into a place where they're going to be better uh, equipped to deal with climate change, you know, better equipped to deal with fire. Yeah. I, I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the big questions that I think a lot of researchers are grappling with and a lot of managers too, right? Trying to think about what's the species mix that makes our forests more resilient. But in, in terms of the kind of the evolutionary adaptation to deal with fire, um, I, again, I would say, you know, it's a, a continuum, right? So there's a range of adaptations that allow trees to deal with fire in different ways. But I would say, you know, I'll contrast the two ends of the spectrum, right? And one is like giant sequoia. And so that's everything about that species. It's adapted to withstand fire, right? To experience fire, to live through it, and to continue go on and growing and reproducing, right? And so, you know, the adaptations are that it grows fast, 
Um, so that's real important to get tall and get your needles above the, your leaves above the, the flame length, right? And then the other thing is it puts on really thick bark. And bark is a really fantastic insulator against fire. Whereas the other end of the spectrum is lodgepole pine, and particularly the variety that occurs in the Rocky Mountains. Its whole approach is it dies by fire, uh, but that creates the space for its offspring to, to, to grow. And so, okay. you know, this tree holds its, holds its cones in the canopy. The cone scales are basically glued shut with this resin. And then when the fire passes through, it kills the, the mature trees, um, but then the heat causes those cone scales to, to release, to, to open up and release the seeds. The seeds drop down on the forest floor, and then you know there, there's no leaf litter and stuff on the forest floor, so they land on bare mineral soil. And then they're able to germinate and then grow without the competing light competition from the adult trees. And so, you know, their, their whole system is, is structured such that like fire is relatively rare, but when it does happen, it kills the majority of adults. And then that allows the offspring to establish. Very different and interesting sort of evolutionary um, approaches to dealing with fire. So treatments are available. Different trees are going to fare better in certain certain situations. Maybe I guess the next question is how well are state and and federal, you know, forest management organizations doing at sort of implementing these measures? You know, I think that, um, I think there's a lot of variability there. I think that uh, at the state level, you know, like states like Washington state, their department of natural resources is really well staffed with, um, with people who, you know, they're coming from research backgrounds and stuff like that. And they're thinking about basically how fire risk is changing with climate change, what that means for vegetation and stuff like that. And so I, I think there are, there are places where there's a lot of people thinking about these things and trying to come up with solutions. At the federal level, with this influx of money I talked about, they're better able to do the work that needs to be done. But basically, we need to build a whole new workforce there because it's been allowed to dwindle as budgets have shrunk um, and we need right. more people to do the work. And that's not just government people, right? That's like contractors and stuff who can who can do the work um, that the state and federal agencies um, pay to have done. I think the, the other thing though that we got to keep in mind is that there are state level policies in some states that govern what happens in forests. And then there is um, federal rules. So for example, the U.S. Forest Service has the Forester's Handbook. And that dictates basically the kind of the sideboards in which a, a manager can make decisions. And I think a lot of the policies that we have developed, while useful when developed, need to adapt to deal with changing conditions and the, and the changing climatic conditions. And you know, a great example, we were talking about, um, you know, about tree species and the guidelines for, for reforestation after disturbance in, in the Forest Service rules are very constrained in terms of where your seeds can come from and the species mix and stuff like that. It dictates all of that stuff. And the idea was to make sure the right genetic material and the right species mix is going back on the landscape. The problem is, is that the, ch the climate is changing so fast that relatively constrained envelope in which the, the guidelines make you look for genetic material and species mix may not be appropriate for the place you're, tr you're trying to reforest 
given how quickly the climate is changing and how much it's likely to change in the future. And it sounds like it may be beneficial in cases to sort of have different approaches and then be able to, I guess, have, you know, in theory, some data that better informs, well, we tried this, it didn't work, but we're learning as a result of that, what we might want to do into the future. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's a, you raise a huge point there. So, you know, there's been an idea out there for a long time and it's this idea of adaptive management. You know, we, we make, make a choice, we do something and then having the ability to adapt to changing conditions requires that we measure the response. And then if we're not getting the response we want, we start again, we, we make a change, right. And we try and, uh, achieve the objective that we're after. And I think that, um, you know, as, uh, the pace of climate change increases, that sort of adaptive management feedback loop is going to become a lot more important. And so, you know, one of, one of the things that that's going to require is we're going to actually have to spend some money monitoring stuff. You know, we don't, we, we kind of give monitoring short shrift right now. Yeah. It seems hard to, you know, shift to what the future needs to be if you're not, you know, looking at how things are performing in the, in the current conditions. Yeah. Well, you know, the, clearly the Forest Service is trying to make an effort. You have certain states that are, are in a good place, but it sounds like in general, there's a need to have more folks, you know, involved in this field and being able to, to treat stuff. I guess I, you know, in hearing you talk, it's like one of my worries is like, well, how do you, how do you scale up quickly so that all the forests aren't treated or a large portion treated by these megafires, which obviously mean that you lose a huge portion of the trees versus, you know, losing maybe smaller trees and still having the forest, you know, intact for the most part? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, I think one thing is, is that, you know, we're going to continue to have some large fires on, on these forests, right? Because, because of that scaling up challenge, right? But recognizing that, you know, just because we have a big fire doesn't mean that the entire area that burned is, you know, some quote unquote ecological disaster, right? So in any any big fire, there's usually a pretty sizable portion of it that we get good fire effects. So that they're ecologically appropriate fire effects um, for the, that particular forest type. And um, I think you know, one of the ways that we go about scaling up is recognizing that we can use those areas that have recently burned as, as places to work from, right? So there's, you know, you have a fire footprint and you've had a first entry of fire into a forest and you've still got a lot of green trees and adjacent to that, you've got unburned forest and you can go in and use kind of that recently burned area as a backstop against fire spreading, you know, managed fire spreading beyond where you want it to. I think one of the, one of the things that in hearing you talk is making me think that we all need to get more used to the idea of fire and that having fire isn't a bad thing and that embracing a certain amount of fire is actually a good thing. The other piece I'm in talking about sort of this green field, I guess, if you will, when you've had a place burn, what you know, it sounds like it causes potential for like a fire break. What should we be thinking in terms of rehabilitating that space? In other words, is there an opportunity for us to help kind of accelerate that forest um, path back to being more heterogeneous and, and fire resilient? There's no, I mean, there's no future where we don't have fire, right? 
especially in the in the West, we live in flammable landscapes. They're becoming more flammable. And so it's really a question of, uh, you know, how do we want our fire? How do we want that fire interacting with the vegetation? How at risk do we want our communities? And if if we want to protect our communities and our watersheds, it's about having uh, more of the right kinds of fire on the landscape. Um, in terms of the rehabilitation of these kind of severely burned areas where you have high tree mortality, um, you know, assuming it's a, a, a forest where that's not the right type of fire regime, right? So lodgepole pine, you would just let it go, um, you know, and it's going to seed itself in. Uh, but if we're in, say, a, a forest type where the seeds would be consumed in that kind of hot fire, so like a ponderosa pine forest or something like that, um, you know, the what we don't want to do is uh, replant tomorrow's high severity wildfire risk problem, you know? And so, <laughs> right. you know, we need to, we need to be... Um, thoughtful in the way we approach reforestation. And so we don't want to plant super dense. We don't want to plant all one species. What we need to do is acknowledge um, that there are some places on these landscapes where we will be able to replant trees. And then there are going to be places on these landscapes where pretty much no matter how much money we spend replanting, we're never going to reestablish trees because they're warmer and drier than they were. And you know, they're just not going to support trees. They're going to be shrubs or grassland. Well, not not simple stuff. Um, yeah. And I guess you wouldn't expect it to be, but what can we do to help? What needs to take place so that we can, you know, accelerate our efforts to get to those ecosystems that we need that will enable our forests to be more sustainable in a changing climate? Yeah, I think there's a few different fronts on which um, people can engage um, if you live in the wildland urban interface, so if you live, your house is built in a, in a neighborhood with flammable vegetation around and stuff like that, the number one thing you can do is follow, uh, you know, the firewise recommendations and get your house prepared so that if a fire happens nearby, your house is not a casualty. So that's number one. Number two, anyone who lives in the West has breathe some pretty foul air in the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years at some point. And, um, you know, recognizing that the only way that we don't have prolonged degraded air quality uh, from these kind of extreme wildfires is if we are more tolerant of lesser amounts of smoke more, more often, right? So prescribed burning, manage natural ignitions, we're going to have smoke in the air one way or another. And so it's, uh, it's about, you know, recognizing that some smoke delivered, uh, you know, in a smaller dose is, is way less harmful to us than tons of smoke delivered in a very high dose, right? And then finally, I think part of it is reaching out to your elected officials, making it clear that, that dealing with this is really important, and then we're going to have to make some investments to do that. And I think those are kind of the three, the three big opportunities. I like that opportunities, um, and it sounds like in, in addition to helping get more investment, you know that those of us who are out in that in that space by helping work with our neighbors, getting our property more equipped, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably also beneficial to all of these folks that are fighting wildfire. Right, so this one less structure they have to yeah. worry about defending and putting their life on the line for. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that you know I have uh, I I have a number of friends that are that work in wildland fire, and when they're trying to figure out the suppression strategy, 
there's a lot of time spent in helicopters looking at the landscape and figuring out, you know, balancing where can I, you know, like if I'm, if I'm making the decision of where a fire crew is going to make, you know, try and dig fire line, it's balancing the risk to that crew. And then where are people's homes, you know, and, and increasingly the wildfire behavior that we're seeing is so extreme that in order to not kill people, fire, you know, the, the fire managers are having to pull people further back, right? Which means that there are more increasingly more homes inside the fire line. And, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta imagine that, that that's probably a really tough pill to swallow when you've spent your career, you know, trying to protect people's homes. And, and now your choice is, I let the, you know, basically I let this neighborhood burn or I really risk killing people. And, yeah. and, you know, it's like, the best thing that we can do from a perspective of, of working with wildland firefighters in that regard is making sure that, um, you know, if they have to pull back, your home is, is less likely to burn because it's, you know, it's well-prepared that you've managed the fuels around it and you've managed the, the home envelope. So it's less likely to catch fire from an ember. Well, it sounds like no matter where we sit, we all have a role to play in, you know, helping reduce the risk of wildfire and, and, better manage our forests, uh, you know, in terms of fire. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on and, and sharing some of your knowledge. I definitely feel a little bit smarter when it comes to wildfire. And, and thanks for all the work that you're doing in the space. Thanks, Jason. I appreciated the conversation. So, Flora Thomas, what did you guys uh, think about the interview with Matt? Oh, I loved it. I feel like it's such a relevant topic, you know, kind of everywhere right now. I'm in the Canary Islands and we're even having some bad wildfire even recently this past weekend. So yeah, it definitely feels like a really important topic to cover. And I definitely think that it kind of gives us all a lot to think about as we move forward with, you know, how are we going to deal with these fires? How do we plan to rebuild? Do we plan to rebuild? Where do we build? Definitely a lot of directions to go from there. I think while, you know, Matthew was talking, I kept thinking back to some of the historical context, you know, particularly North America in kind of the Northern California area. There's a really long history of tribes like the Hoopa or the Yurok um, using controlled burns to manage forests. So I'm definitely curious to see how, how people you know, we'll take that as a strategy moving forwards. It, it made me think about NIMBY for sure, not in my backyard. You know, how do we facilitate this as a viable option for people who are living near these areas? Yeah, I think it is easy to to sort of label, you know, wildfire as bad until you understand the context. And I think Matt did a nice job of, of explaining that, right? That fire's mm-hmm. natural. It's it's always been, been around and it's going to continue to be around. And so we need to help get our forests back to a place where they're, you know, more resilient. And mm. part of that, you know, ironically is doing more prescribed burns, um, at least in, in certain landscapes. Thoughts from your end, Thomas? Uh, well, look, the jury had been out in my mind for a long time around the value of prescribed burns um, from a climate perspective, right? Mm. Like, I, I mean, I can understand from an asset protection perspective, but I, I'm now leaning towards the fact that in certain forest types, yeah, it could probably be a useful tool because it allows those larger trees to mature. And 
I wholeheartedly agree with Matt. We've got to move away from these monocultures. We've got to have different varieties in there to break up the forest. Like I, I mean, I regularly, when I look at footage after forest fires have gone through, I look at like what what trees around houses ended up um, being saved, and and often it's things like like in the English oak and and other deciduous mm. trees. Whereas the conifers and eucalypts and so forth, you know, the fire just continues to run through them. So having that break and moving away from these monocultures in uh, forestry operations, I think is going to be really important. Absolutely. And I mean, that feels so across the board when we're talking about the effects of climate change. You know, in the Western US, we're seeing the Western red cedars have this massive die off. And right now it's assumed that that's climate change, drought stress. Uh, but it's the same thing where the solution that people are putting out there for forest management is diversify, diversify, diversify. So I absolutely see the merit there. And there are, there are other benefits from this too. And I mean, as Jason and I recently saw on a ride in the, in the coast range in Oregon where all these dug fur had been put in and root rot mm. had you know, traveled from one tree to the next unabated and they had to clear cut it. But what the Forest Service did was replace that with mixed species. Yeah, I think, you know, it, Matt highlighted the, you know, Washington Department of Ecology and kind of the science-based approach that they're taking. And I think, you know, having having folks that are, you know, steeped in the science, looking at what the data are, are telling us and being able to continue to sort of iterate is going to be key because we don't know you know, we can't predict what the future is going to bring. We know there are going to be warmer temperatures. We know there's going to be more fire, but which species end up, you know, over the long term faring better, there's clearly going to need to be some some trial and error. So being able to deviate from the normal playbook feels like an important thing. And, you know, I think the other thing worth calling out uh, as we're talking about all this is, you know, we can make our force more resilient and we should. But we also need to be more responsible in terms of, you know, where and how we develop in the wildland, you know, urban interface. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to remember, too, that, well, from studies I found in Australia, 75% of fires are started by humans. Um, and if we can stop living in these areas, then, you know, backyard burns and things like that, that end up getting out of control and taking out entire forests, we've basically reduced that risk. Yeah. And I, I really do feel like step one is going to be just halting that development. We were talking a little bit, Jason and I, about the Oregon wildfire risk map, which is just such such an interesting thing to kind of follow because Oregon released this wildfire risk map and immediately you know, the Bureau was flooded with so much feedback from people who were like, my house has been wrongly assigned, my insurance has changed, you know, I can't live where I want to live now. Uh, and so it it will be interesting to see how people try to continue to live in these areas. And that's the same in places like Florida, which are having just also wild, wild insurance crises as people who have houses in areas where we've got rising sea levels, you know, are trying to figure out what to do from there. Yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, it's unfortunate because there are going to be situations where, you know, your house loses value, but we can't go on pretending that there's not a problem, right? You mm -hmm. know, climate change is making extreme weather events, you know, things like fire much worse. And so we need to pull off the bandaid and realize, A, we can't keep developing in these areas in good conscience. And B, 
let's be eyes wide open about where there's risk. And then, mm-hmm. you know, taking measures in the form of basic things like steel roofs and things like hardy plank siding that, you know, help you be more resilient when there is fire that comes through. Along those lines, Jason, I think this is a sort of a, a bit of an indirect call for greater urban density. And I think there are a lot of benefits of not just reducing the fire risk, both to humans, structures, but there are all these other things that we've talked about in previous episodes around CO2 emissions associated with density, right? So you go and build a house in the forest, you have to have a long driveway to get there, lots of pipe work, electrical infrastructure, whatever it might be. Or let's say you are off grid, you still need a massive battery and all these assets that can't be shared with the rest of society because you built your house in this little off grid bubble. So it ends up being really expensive from a carbon intensity perspective, despite the fact that it looks all clean and green. It, it really isn't compared to building in a more densely populated area. And then, sure, have the road out to the forest so that you can jump on your mountain bike and head out there in the weekend and go and experience it. But living in the middle of it where you have to drive a long distance to the supermarket to get to the school, to get to work or whatever it might be, is really not the best thing from a carbon perspective. Great point. And also, by the way, awesome plug for episode 63, where we talk about housing as a climate solution. So if you haven't given a listen, you should go do that. Both great points, you guys. I guess in addition to you plugging density, Thomas, I would say that the reality is we can be designing our our small towns to be denser as well and, you know, making it more walkable, climate friendly, and, you know, as we've said, have them out of harm's way so we're not making, you know, the job of trying to curtail or control these wildfires that much harder. Well, I think that's a good segue into the question, you know, we try to always ask, which is what can we do? And we've got two options this week. The first is we'd like to ask folks to uh, call your representative and tell them to increase federal funding for wildfire risk mitigation. You know, as Matt mentioned in the interview, we've got a good start with some of the recent federal bills that have passed, but it's going to take a lot more cash to get our forests to a place where they're truly, you know, more resilient. And for our second option, which we've, you know, already talked about a lot this episode, if you live in an area with more fire risk, you know, get involved. Contacting your local government and calling for an end to development in the wildland urban interface. And look, I'd like to throw in a third option, um, if I may. Grab your mountain bike, get out there. Go and ride these forests and appreciate them for what they are, because then you'll feel even more driven to look after them. Great point, you guys. Well, that's it for uh, for this week's episode. If you haven't already, take a moment to sign up for our, our monthly newsletter, short on fluff, full of facts, and, and good action opportunities when it comes to climate. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast.